do 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 Okay. Maybe I did a dumb thing. Let's try this. <gasps> okay, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I did a dumb thing. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, Steph, how's it going? Pretty great. To kind of continue my Ember journey, Mm. I have been diving into Mirage factories. What is Mirage? I know the word factories, but what is Mirage? (laughs) Yeah, fair question. So Mirage is a JavaScript library that supports mocking out your backend APIs. It's a pretty extensive playground. I'm not really sure why I'm calling it a playground instead of a library, but uh, yeah, that works too. (laughs) Let's run with it. It's got slides and uh, merry-go-rounds and all that. Oh, yeah. Monkey bars, all the things you need in a playground. And it's advertised not just for mocking out API calls to write integration tests, but you can also use it for prototyping is one of the things that they often will suggest that you use Mirage for. So in addition to mocking out API calls, Mirage will also provide some other features like it has its own database that it uses, as well as serializers, routes and factories. Is that like an in-memory database or is that a it's not persisted, I would assume, but correct. Maybe. At least that's my understanding. I don't think it's it's not persisted, but it's more like I think it's a list, honestly, mm-hmm. where it's just like an in-memory database where it's holding on to anything that you're creating and then will reset in between tests. So I haven't played too much with some of the other features that it has, but I do feel that I'm really missing factories when I'm writing tests on the front end. So when I saw that Mirage has factories and we are using Mirage in this project, I figured that I would lean into it a bit further and see what it did for me. And it is interesting because while seeing that we use Mirage in the application already in the test suite, we're using Mirage in some places, but then we're also using just emberobject.create to initialize an object with certain properties in lieu of using factories. Are you using ember data under the hood? For the ember object? Mm-hmm. I don't think so because the ember object is just going to give me back an object. So then it's not actually persisting anything via ember data. So we're not setting anything in the actual ember data database. It's just initializing like a, a plain old object that then gotcha. I can pass around and set some state on it. Or a slightly fancy embery object, but a an object as opposed to an ember data fancy thing that knows about all the relationships and all of that. Yes. Okay. I see what you're meaning now. Then yes, in that case, it comes with some of those inherent values of like inheriting from ember data models. Mm-hmm. So the ember object works, but I found it, it's not terribly clear as to like what it is that this object is supposed to represent. And then I've also noticed in some places, it feels like we are setting additional attributes or properties that aren't really being used in that test. Mm. So it feels like one of those issues or one of those concerns that factories will solve for you. So you can get some sort of generic boilerplate stuff going, but you don't have to focus on it in your test. You can just set the properties you care about. So it's been pretty good so far. It has some nice features uh, that feel very familiar to Factory Bot. So it has options where I can create. I can also create a list. Mirage also offers traits and will let me define my associations. But one oddity that I did run into that I'm still kind of mulling over to find out if there's a solution to it 
is that when creating a Mirage factory, it's creating a Mirage model and it's not inheriting any of those Ember data models properties, including like the computed properties. So to provide an example, let's say I'm creating a user Mirage factory and the user model has a first name and a last name and a computed property called full name that returns the first name combined with the last name. So the Mirage model, to behave the same as the Ember data model, I have to define the full name property on the factory, which is interesting because it's kind of like how we would define doubles in our spec, where I have to define the logic in two places since I'm really just creating this sort of Poral Ruby object, or in this case, a Poral JavaScript object. Is that a thing? Do people say that? I don't think it's poor <laughs> in the Poro or Pojo. I think it's plain. <laughs> I like the judgment that you're implying of, oh, it's just a poor old Ruby object, but I'm pretty sure that's not the acronym. (laughs) I don't know why I just said that, but that's hilarious. (laughs) You're just like, you're sad for them. You're like, it's okay. Someday you'll graduate to being a big fancy framework object, but poor old Ruby object. Just a poor old Ruby object. Just a plain old Ruby object. Man, I am judgy today. Mm. So I have to define the logic in two different places. And with RSpec, I can use instance doubles. So with RSpec, the instance double will verify that any of the methods that I'm stubbing are present on the instance of that class. And it'll also verify the number of arguments are correct. So I feel safer when I'm using RSpec and I'm defining a double in that sense because I know it's not going to drift from my actual production code that I'm running. But with Mirage factories, I don't think I have that option. So I'm still interested in finding out if that does exist in a way I don't know about, because otherwise I just feel like there's a concern for drift there where I could delete that full name computed property on the user Ember model, but then not remove it from the factory. And now I've got the wrong state in my factory. I guess the first question I have is I had, in the little bit that I know of Mirage, thought of it as as something for faking APIs and for building out that layer. And so I would expect that this would all be a non-issue if this were about the API, because that's just sending raw data over, and then your Ember objects will be instantiated with that raw data, but then the computed properties will be computed through the logic. But it sounds like what you're describing is more like model or unit level things, and so you're using the factories to create an object which you're using in place of an Ember object. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. A lot of the tests will go all the way out to the API and stubbing that out. So then it's using the full system and I don't have to care about that. But I do have components that I want to test in isolation where it's taking in an object. And then I just want to, let's say there's a description about something that happened. And based on the state of that object, I'm going to show three or four different variations of that description. So at that point, I really don't care about the what came back from the API. I want to be able to change the state of that object and then make sure my description mm-hmm. changes appropriately. I wonder, could you you do the like factory so interact with the factories to get the raw object but then pass that into ember object create and then you have the wrapped version that will do the computed stuff this is far past my knowledge of ember and where the computed happens and how that all works but it feels like you're potentially replacing what should be an ember object with just a plain old javascript object from the factories and maybe that's where the mismatch is Yeah, I think that's a a good way of saying it is that I have replaced it with a Mirage model instead of that Ember data model. And say that part again where I could potentially wrap it. How are you envisioning that would work? So if you have like a JavaScript object with the data, first name and last name, if you can then take that, which is now a minimum viable sufficient data package, pass that into the Ember user object like instantiate an Ember user object wrapping around that, and then it will do its computed magic and all those other things. Oh, I don't know. That sounds nifty. I don't know how the instantiation of those works and like what the life cycles look like, but 
it sounds like you want behavior that's defined in the models, and yet the thing that you have is just raw data. And so getting it into the model feels like a potential solution. But again, I don't know what the wires look like there and how much machinery you'd have to work through to get that to happen. Yeah, I'm not sure either. That's a cool idea. I'll check into it and get back to you. I don't know if that's a thing, but that's definitely something worth exploring. So yeah, that's kind of what's going on in my week is just playing more with Mirage and understanding its ecosystem. How's your week going? It's going well. I have had actually some interesting interactions with automation that are starting to poke at the edges of my comfort or make me think more about automation. So particularly the things that I've been running into are the automated deployment and the current application that I'm working on is both very automated and also limiting in some ways that I find really interesting. And then also on one of the, we're actually building a package, the component module that I've talked about in previous episodes, and we're using a tool called Semantic Release, which tries to automate changelog writing and semantic versioning and release management and package publishing and sort of all of the extra work that goes into having a package. But similarly, I found the automation to be cumbersome at times. Yeah, so it's been a bit of an adventure. So when you say it's cumbersome, can we poke at that a bit? What's cumbersome about it? Sure. Well, I can give the particular examples in both cases. So in the deploy case, the system is using CircleCI for continuous integration for actually running the test, but it's also using that to kick off deploys. So there is a deploy script, but as part of CircleCI's workflow, there's a hold step, which is a thing that I hadn't seen before, but it basically gives you a button in the UI that says hold for a human to click this button, wait for a person to click this button. And so deploy is now the step that waits until you click that button. So every change, everything that gets built has this button in it that says, cool, you can deploy this now. And it's like a one button. Anyone can do it. It's through UI. In a lot of ways, that's absolutely fantastic. But unfortunately, the actual deploy script running under the hood doesn't use the commit that we're on, the thing that like just got built by CircleCI. It ends up pulling down the repo separately rebuilding based on the head of, uh, we actually use a different branch, like a development branch, but the head of that development branch. So the only thing that we can deploy is the head of the development branch, which has some complications where like if we're trying to get a deploy out, we'll see occasionally in Slack, can everyone hold off on merging to development because we're trying to get a deploy out. And it's this unfortunate conflating of merging to this branch with deploying and the way that those are tied together. And it makes for a moment, right before the holidays, we had an extended deploy freeze or a, an extended freeze. And so we didn't want to merge anything in case we needed to get a quick fix, bug fix sort of thing out. And so we had something like 35 PRs stack up. And then when we all came back from the holidays, everyone was like fighting to get theirs merged in. And then the deploys associated with that were extra complicated. And it's something that the whole team intends to resolve, but it's one of those situations where automation sort of ran away. And then we looked at it and we're like, oh, hmm, it would be great if it didn't work like that, but it's hard to unwind it. So when you talk about it build, CircleCI will build that particular commit. And then when you deploy, it's going to deploy from the head of whichever branch that you've designated as like your master that's going out into the world. Is that a CircleCI configuration or is that a homegrown tool that is determining which version is going out to the world during the deploy. I believe that's a homegrown a deploy script that has been written internally at the organization. So it's sort of we introduce this ourselves and it makes logical sense like oh yeah deploy. You take the head of the development or whatever you know is the branch that we want, we build it and then we deploy it. But it turns out it's actually really nice to be able to for any commit that is fast forward from what's currently on staging or production, I'd love to be able to deploy just up to that. So not any arbitrary piece of code, but like, let's say that we can always deploy any piece moving forward, but we don't have to deploy the head. Oh, I see. So if you've merged some stuff into master, let's say you've got 
two commits in there that you're ready to deploy, but there's two commits sitting on top of those other ones. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to basically to like cherry pick and say, start here and deploy, but ignore the other two. Yes. Like, yeah, if somebody else merges on top of mine and I've just tested mine and I know my changes are good to go out to production, I have to go over to the other person and say, hey, uh, you just merged this as well. Is that good to go? Because I have to deploy yours along with mine. So that's an unfortunate limitation on the workflow. But it's an example where automation was put in place because we wanted to make sure we had this repeatable process that there's a lot that actually goes into deploying into getting it out into a CDN and shifting things over and migrating traffic and a whole bunch of things that need to happen. And so the automation totally makes sense, but it's there's this rough edge to it that is somewhat unfortunate. And then similarly, semantic release is a wonderful tool that automates a lot of just sort of nuisances, but it has a very persnickety way that it wants me to write the commit messages. There's a format because it's essentially parsing the commit message to determine, was this a fix? Was this a feature addition? Is this a breaking change? And then what's the message that we should associate with that? But like, it won't let me use capital letters, which I find weird. I don't know if that's actually like a normal semantic release configuration or if that's just uh, the particular one that we've got running. But I keep getting it wrong and it keeps yelling at me. And then it turns out, I think I made a build change. So that was the like type of the change and it won't produce a release for that. So I was like, oh no, this is unfortunate. So then I tried to trick it and I did an empty commit PR that was a fix or a feature. I forget which it was, but GitHub ignored that apparently. And so it didn't get a release from that. And I keep, I'm like, I just want to release. <laughs> and I used to, prior to us setting up all this automation, I could have just like gone to the command line and done a release. But now we've built up this whole structure that I have to go through, but suddenly I'm stuck in this situation. And so I don't know the correct answer to any of these things, but more and more over time, my thoughts on automation are like, there's an 80% that makes sense to automate, but that last 20%, I try and be as careful as possible and make sure I'm certain because if I automate everything, then I don't have room for human intervention. And so I like to find that that happy 80% and then be like, but a human can type a couple commands into the command line. Again, that's a double-edged sword. What if I forget one? What if there's a critical one? What if I fail to migrate the traffic and then we accidentally drop the production database? Like, who knows? Anything can happen. Hopefully not drop the production database. But. <laughs> Hopefully that, not that one. But yeah, you want a little like flexibility, essentially, in your process. So I'm curious, going back a little bit when you're talking about someone's merged something in a master and then you have to check with them or into the development branch and you have to check with them and be like, I want to deploy, but you just merged in. When does your team test? Does it go into like the main deployed branch for testing? A couple of different options there. So one is there is some excellent infrastructure that the team has. The DevOps organization is set up to take any pull request and we can build basically a version of a production-like environment. So actually orchestrating against a couple different services and things and build my PR and test that. So give me a live version of it that anyone can look at, both you know product can look at it, development, anyone on the team can go and poke at that instance. So we have the ability to test in PRs before we merge, which is really fantastic. So ideally, when we're merging into the development branch, that's already tested. Occasionally, there are certain things that only make sense to test on staging. So anything that is merged to development automatically goes to staging. That's just Circle does that automatically. And so that's going to be up there and we can go poke at it on a staging, like a true staging interface with more data and all those sort of things. But then the last step is pushing to production. There is, as far as I understand it, no actual distinction between development and master as a branch. Uh, It's just used to sort of coordinate where we are in that development history. But yeah, going to production is just the, the final deploy step. And that's the one where it gets interesting. I see. Okay. So for most of the time, when stuff gets into like that main preserved deployment branch, it's already been through testing, but then there's still the courtesy if there's something else that's merged and you're about to deploy, you certainly want to check to make sure it's safe to send out into the world. 
right? There's been some conversations about continuous integration. So like everything that gets merged just goes straight to prod, but that's a big leap for a team to take. And so we're not quite there yet. And then there's been varying forms of every day at 1030, someone comes into the channel, lists out the commits that are about to go to production, and then pings each individual person that has a commit and says like, hey, is this good to go? But we've determined that that's a little bit more onerous, and it puts a lot of work on that individual that's owning the deploy. And ideally, we want that to be a pretty easy job and to be doing it very regularly. So we've now tried to change it from sort of a cultural perspective of if you merge, it will be going out unless you say something. So it's sort of a, instead of a safety check, it is a assume good to go, which I think is a good, like, we should be of that opinion when we are merging our code. And we should be like, yeah, this is good code. This can definitely go to production. It won't break anything. I feel confident about that. Uh, and maybe we're wrong every once in a while, but hopefully not often. I don't know if this is something that we've talked about, but what is your sort of like ideal, like if you were maintaining an app and sort of like running the show, what would your ideal testing process look like when it comes to like getting someone to QA it and then before it goes out or maybe don't QA it? What's sort of like your ideal flow? Well, I'm going to use the magic two letter acronym QA there, which I think is a bigger conversation. So I'm going to I'm going to answer the question of like, we have a team, we have product manager. And so just working within that context. For me, I think the ideal is we have the ability to test any pull request before it gets merged. So Heroku has review apps, Netlify will do automated deploys of pull requests. And then like this organization that I'm working with has their own internal thing that their DevOps team maintains, but the ability to test anything as part of a pull request. So on top of all of the automation unit tests and integration tests and all of those things that I would want to have and have a good amount of confidence in, then that's the next step. I want to be able to do that and actually poke at it in like a real production-like build of the app. And then from there, I would say everything gets automatically deployed to staging when it's merged. And ideally, the closest to one-click deployment and pretty much everything, the default expectation would be that anything getting merged to master will go out to production within a half an hour to an hour of that. And the expectation is everyone sort of shepherds their changes out whenever they're landing. Okay, cool. It's funny. I know you and I are kind of looking for topics that we may disagree on because we're just looking for that variety of things to talk about. But I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering, it was like, have we found one? No? All right. Any deviations, anything that uh, you would want to see in addition to what I described? So out of all the teams that I've worked with and the different flows, that one is still feels like the most natural and easiest. I love the Heroku review apps. I haven't worked with the Netlify ones as much, except when Paul Smith was still working with ThoughtBot and was working on Lucky and he was using Netlify. And he was the one that first exposed me to the fact that Netlify has that cool feature. So Heroku review apps are still my favorite because it feels like the best way to test this set of changes. And then there's no actual merging my code in with everyone else's to staging and getting it tested there and going to master. So no, really everything you said aligns for me. I think a lot of people just don't aren't able to use that flow. I guess mainly for staging data is one of the reasons that I've found is that there's just too much data that they want to have on staging to reproduce a lot of real world scenarios. And so just taking it to staging where they have all that data once is much easier than trying to regenerate all that data each time that someone is, say, creating a Heroku review app. And I think there were also like some HIPAA concerns with Heroku review apps. So that could be one other not in trying to pursue that path. Yeah, I I think for me, what I described is sort of the gold standard, but it's very rare that I'll be working on a team that has all of that. And so as I come onto a team and then as I'm working with a team for any amount of time, I'm continually measuring up what we have against that and saying, like, what is the gap and why is it there? 
like HIPAA uh, becomes a really difficult thing. And de-identifying data is a notoriously difficult, seems seems like it should be easy, not easy, super easy to get wrong. Don't roll your own crypto, don't roll your own de-identification. It's one of those. So occasionally, you know, there are very real things. But then occasionally, there are things that are like, well, it's just different because it is. And with those, that's where I'm going to try and put a little bit of energy and see like, well, can we try? What if we, do we have a hackathon coming up where we could like take a stab at changing this? Or what are our options to try and move closer to that? But yeah, it's rare to actually get all of those things in place. And there's also just the general sense of like, when the test suite runs and it's green, how do you feel? Do you feel great? Do you feel like, yeah, no, definitely this is good. I feel like very confident in this change. Or it's like, well, it might work. And that's a big gap. Or like the test suite regularly fails. We have a test that flaps all the time. And each of those are different. They're not like truly quantifiable. They're very much intuitive feeling-based things. But again, that's at the end of the day, sometimes what I have to hold up and be like, how do I feel when this test suite runs versus other test suites that I've had where they ran quickly and they gave me feedback that I trusted and believed? Have most of the teams that you've worked with, do they have internal hackathons? Mm, It's a relatively common thing, but it's definitely not every team. I'd say like half of them, probably. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was just kind of curious. I was thinking about that. I think there's only one team I've worked with where I haven't heard that they've had like a set hackathon where they would get together and just sort of build fun stuff. So I was just curious. So yeah, that's sort of a brief summary of some of the stuff that's been on my mind and general thoughts around automation, which perhaps I'll revisit in coming weeks and see if we've if anything's changed or if that's the way the world stays. And maybe I've just acclimated to all of the things. But yeah, so uh, what else is up with you? Oh, I discovered something that I think that you'll be very excited about. I'm pretty sure recently we were talking about how Twitter is lacking some of the accessibility that we'd really like to see Twitter incorporate into its platform. So when folks are sharing images, then they're often adding a second tweet or adding some text along with that image to then include the alt text or description of that image. And today, I started looking a little deeper into it, and I found that they do have a way that supports that you can add alt text to an image. So I figured I'd tell you, I actually haven't tried it on mobile, but on the web, you can go to your settings and go to accessibility. And then there's an option for compose image descriptions. And if you turn that on, that anytime you add an image, there's going to be like a edit description or something like that, where then you can provide the description for your image, but it's just turned off by default, which I think is interesting. Mm. Was this a recent change? Because I see so many people doing the secondary tweet follow-up. This is what was in the previous image for accessibility reason. So I wonder if perhaps it's not being surfaced completely, or if that's a recent addition, or I don't know, maybe folks just don't know. I certainly didn't know about it. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, I honestly have no idea if it's a recent addition or not. I haven't dug into it. I think I googled something looking for accessibility with Twitter because I was looking for an example where someone's provided alt text as I was sharing an image. And then I found an article, but I didn't check the date of it that pointed me to going to like my settings and then enabling this particular setting. Hmm. Well, yeah, I definitely agree that I would love to see that as a default on. And sometimes folks, in my mind, unfortunately respond to accessibility work. It's like, ah, do we really have to? And there's like a resistance because they view it as much more work. And I think there's very complicated conversations to have there. I think it's good work and we should be doing it all the time. But in this case, I think it's just fun. You just have a little text box where you get to describe a silly image. Like that's just always going to be fun. We should definitely always have that text box on, (laughs) even for the naysayers. Write whatever you want in there. Well, no, please write actual descriptive text in the alt text (laughs) field. But like you can have fun with it. You can have fun, but don't go wild. (laughs) You know, be useful, but uh, you can use descriptive language. Feel free to go adjective adventurous. So yeah, so that was just something I was super excited to share with you. I was like, oh, Chris is going to love this. I do. I'm very happy to hear it. So thank you for sharing. You bet.
So pivoting just a bit, we have a listener question that we can respond to today. So this question comes from Dan Ott and Dan wrote in, thanks for sharing your conversations regularly. Listening to the bike shed after I walked my son to school has become a routine that I look forward to every week. And I can't say enough how much I appreciate y'all keeping at it and sharing your experience. Thanks, Dan. We really appreciate the kind words. Yeah, thanks, Dan. And then Dan continues, in a previous episode, episode 211, you mentioned the trade-offs between React and a server-rendered Rails application. If you revisit that episode 211, I think you and I, Chris, we were talking a bit about if we're converting like an existing API over to using a GraphQL or if we're going to continue developing with the existing structure when we enter a client's project. So a little bit of context, although I, I could be wrong since I haven't gone back to listen to that exact conversation But moving forward with what Dan has written in, he highlighted the idea that there's a cost if we don't already have an API that we've built out or all the necessary API functionality. And what struck Dan the most about that is that his team is a heavy user of React and they haven't arrived there by way of a JSON API. So Dan writes, we have some legacy Rails apps, which make us pretty invested in our established stack and calculated about handling parts of the DOM tree to React. As I've talked to more friends, it seems like my team is an outlier. I've noticed the communal understanding trending towards the decision for React as implying a JSON API, single page app, and etc. My team has experienced a middle ground for adopting React in a Rails application, and it seems like I'm not finding anyone else that's doing the same. I'm curious how this idea might play out in agency work, or if it's even a recommended approach for new work that is mostly crud with a few high-fidelity views. So Chris, do you want to kick us off in responding to Dan? Sure. So I think there's a lot to unpack there. I think at the core of it, my sense is that Dan similarly feels the weight of the complexity that introducing a whole API and client server communication and all of that, all of that weight is is a bunch. And if we have a primarily CRUD app, couldn't we just do sort of sprinkles of JavaScript, but those sprinkles being React? And I think my sense is that his view of the world is roughly correct, that that is not as common of a use case these days, but I think it's still totally viable and definitely something that I would consider. I think more common in Rails apps in particular, at least historically, folks would just reach for jQuery when they wanted a little bit of fancy front-end stuff. We want you know dynamic validations or a widget that pops open when you click on something or a little calendar or something like that. But the idea of reaching for React instead seems perfectly reasonable to me, particularly to take like certain segments of your DOM and make them fancier, make them do more on the front end. And I agree that taking the jump to having an API and having all of that other complexity feels like a bunch to pick up. And so I would definitely similarly resist it if there wasn't a clear reason. So a clear reason in my mind is if we have multiple different clients, so if we have an iOS app, an Android app, and then the web app, that's sort of going to push us into the world of having an API no matter what. Granted, actually, Basecamp is a good example of a company that doesn't do that. So their mobile apps are actually rendering primarily Rails-generated HTML views, as far as I understand it, with a little bit of magic wiring and some things to give it you know, mobile-like feel, but still use the same technology stack. So there are even alternatives there. But overall, yeah, I think this is totally a reasonable thing. I think I see more folks using Vue as an answer for this these days. So a way to just like sprinkle in some extra dynamic things that's not jQuery, but not going all the way up to React and single page app and all of that. But I'll pause there and see what do you what are your thoughts, Steph? Yeah, a lot of that certainly resonates with me. That's cool. I didn't know that about Basecamp that they were basically just doing like mobile friendly views instead of developing like a mobile specific application. 
In this case, it is interesting. You and I have both worked on one client where they're using Rails for the back end and Elm for the front end. And when they are initializing the Elm app or certain Elm views, that they are initializing it with data. So the Rails controller is passing in that data and then starting up the Elm app. But from once that view is started, then it will create or it will issue API calls for any additional data or user interactions. And that was the first time that I had seen that combined approach where we're going to start with the Rails controller, pass it to our JavaScript front end framework, and then use some API endpoints. And that seemed to work pretty well. I'm curious what you think about that, because I don't think we've had a meaningful conversation about that sort of like dual setup. I think overall that approach fundamentally seems fine, I think. I don't really feel strongly about it either way. I think in the case of that application, that particular one, that felt like an app that maybe didn't need to be as dynamic on the client side. And that was a case where if we could have still rendered on the server side, we would have saved the complexity of some API build out and things like that. And that's the consideration that I always want to be looking at is that's a drastic complexity saving. If we can just render views on the server, submit some forms, do those normal things that Rails is very good at. If we can build in that way, then I know that I can build the app faster and have more confidence in it and et cetera, et cetera. That's me personally based on my skill set and you know what I've done, but I also, based on the applications that I encounter in the wild, I found that to be largely true. Don't think it's a universal truth. I'm, I'm caveating real hard here. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that complexity, the complexity argument feels true. And then the what you get as a final product is more circumstantial. But yeah, I think sending data down as opposed to like having the app boot up and then make an API call to get it feels better. Actually, server-side rendering is another consideration here that we haven't even talked about, but it's an interesting thing and it makes for a better experience from a user perspective, no question about it. And so if we can do that, I like that idea. That's almost an independent idea, but it's very related to like, how are we building this app? But yeah, I think from the consulting perspective uh, that we will always try to start first with server-side rendered views. And then if we realize during the design sprint or at some point that we're going to have more high interaction pages that we really need a front end framework to support those interactions, then we will move over into that space. But I feel like that's typically where we will always try to start and then move towards that direction as we need to. Uh, So I'm a little curious because in Dan's question, he mentioned the fact that they haven't arrived there by way of JSON API. So that's making me guess that their application is doing something similar where it's initializing the React app or the React views with data. But then they must have some APIs for the rest of the interactions that are taking place. Presumably, although maybe it's, you know, boot up the app with a bunch of data and then you're interacting primarily client side and don't need to serialize back and forth. The other technology that does come to mind, I haven't actually had a chance to play around with it, but there's a framework called Inertia.js, I want to say. It primarily started in the Laravel PHP world, but there is now a port of it that works with Rails. And it, as far as I can tell, it's like TurboLinks, but more focused. It allows for, like, say, dynamic table sorting, but without full page reloads and things like that. So you get that client experience that you want, the responsiveness of the client and you know the rapid feedback, but without having to transition entirely to a new framework. Or I think you can use things like React, but they run on the server in a way. I Again, I don't really understand it, but I looked at it and I was like, that's interesting because it didn't require building out the whole API and it let us do more work on the server while still giving that high fidelity client-side experience. And so that's on my list of things to play with, but I've yet to actually dig in really. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, I haven't heard of inertia. I have also heard uh, you'd mentioned earlier about using Vue for some of those like higher user interactions without using something like React or some of the other frameworks. And I've also heard positive things from my friends that have used Vue, that it's gone pretty well. And I'm pretty sure we've used Vue for a couple of our projects as well. I haven't used it myself, but that's one that seems to have like a positive response from the community, at least in my circle. Thank you so much, Dan, for writing in. And hopefully uh, that shines a little bit of light. And hopefully for anyone else out there with similar thoughts, that provides some things to go take a look at, if nothing else. I really do got to check out Inertia. But with that, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.